Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We are preaching our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we have come to chapter 2, where Paul has been making an appeal for the unity of the church. And last week we looked at the first three parts of his appeal, where he gives the motivation for it, the the object of what he's wanting to accomplish or see accomplished in the church, and the thrust of that appeal, what it looks like in action, what it requires of each of us. That was in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. Today we begin to look at the fourth part of Paul's appeal, where Paul brings in the greatest possible example ever of what he's wanting to see exhibited by the Christians in Philippi. He turns to the humble attitude of Jesus himself, which is observable in this cosmic story about Jesus humbling himself to come down from the heights of heaven in all his glory to the lowest cross and to take up on the work of our redemption. So we're going to look at verses 5 to 11 this morning. Let's read this together. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. That is so awesome of a passage that it's hard to remember, it's easy to forget, that it is simply a supportive illustration (laughs) of another point that Paul is making. Paul just dropped that little diamond right down in the middle of a thank you letter (laughs) to help make a point that he's appealing to his friends in Philippi that they would stay unified and, and that they would behave in ways that promote unity of the body. But often, but that, that's really just illustrative of the logic of the gospel. The, the, the gospel argues us into obedience with points and supporting truths, which are far greater, far outweigh and outshine, far heavier and weightier than the, the ethical requirement that it's calling us to. This is the way Scripture argues. It argues us into obedience this way. God demands of, his demands of us are predicated on, they're based on his own prior redemptive actions, which are far greater and self-costing than anything he calls you or I to do for him. You can see this all through Scripture, You can see it even in how God presents the Ten Commandments, all those ethical requirements. He doesn't just say, you shall have no other gods before me. 
he prefaces it this way. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And that calls our attention back to chapter after chapter of God's amazing works and actions towards his people and great deliverance and power, showing his strong arm towards them and commitment to them and faithfulness to promises he made generations before to Abraham. This is how scripture time and again argues from greater truths to lesser things. You are our obedience. And our obedience is supposed to be seen in light of those things as the, just the natural, graceful, or thankful, gra- yeah, gr- grateful, that's the word I'm looking for, response to the amazing things God has done. That's the logic of the gospel. It's the logic that Paul is following here as he argues for unity. He turns to this example of Jesus, which is just incredible. He's showing that the humility we are called to exhibit is both reasonable and doable because Jesus has first exhibited that attitude, I said times a trillion or something in the first service, and I got a lecture after the first service from Jared Cochran about numbers and the nature of numbers. He says, that's actually a very small number. (laughs) Jared, what's a really big number? Well, come on. That's a concept. Yeah, so there's like scales of numbers that I've never even heard of that are like, you know, like was a Google of number, a Google. There's not a a Google of atoms in the universe. So we're talking, once you talk to Googles, you're, you're getting up into really big numbers. But whatever Jesus has done in condescending from heaven to earth is like so many billions of times, Googles of times in magnitude greater than what he's calling us to do towards one another and and humbling ourselves. We don't want to lose sight of that as we go through this text. But we also need to carefully examine this example or illustration, the story of Jesus, the cosmic telling of Jesus' condescension um, in careful detail. We need to go through it carefully. This is an amazing passage of scripture. It is the greatest passage that for, from which we gain an understanding of the mystery of the incarnation and the divine and human natures of Jesus. We're taught a lot of things. And we're taught them in a really, in brief form, amazing, artful, but brief form. And if we're not careful at a lot of points, we can easily misunderstand it and go astray and fail to appreciate Jesus' work for really what it is. Fail to appreciate the nature and the cost of our redemption. So we're going to go through it carefully. It might feel a little bit more like Sunday school than we're used to. But I think it's important. Well, this passage has two parts. We're going to look at the first part of it today. Stephen is planning to take us through the second half of it next week. Part one in verses six to eight follows Christ's descent of voluntary humiliation from highest heaven to lowest cross. And Paul gives us this as a paradigm for us, for the kind of humble and selfless attitude he wants us to exhibit toward each other. And then in part two, verses nine to 11, traces Christ's subsequent 
and stirring exaltation to the highest of places, all above, far, far above all rule and authority. God exalts him to the highest place because of his humility, because of his sacrifice and his service. And this is God's way of putting his stamp of absolute approval on this way of being, this attitude of mind, and on his son's perfect fulfilling of it. And he gives that to us as a testimony of what God approves of and how he approves of, of it, how he exalts it. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, let's work through the first part of this, verses 68. Christ's descent from heaven to the cross. Paul transitions us from his appeal proper in the first four verses to the story of Jesus with verse 5. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude is that? Well, that points us back to the preceding verses, verses 3 and 4 especially, this is how that attitude expresses itself. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Easy peasy, right? This kind of hap- does itself, in my experience. No, not at all. We talked about this last time. That is hard. Remember what Calvin says? I think I have it here. If anything in our whole life is difficult, this is the worst. This is the worst. Preferring others is better than, or more important or more significant than ourselves. Putting their needs before my own. Reserving some part of my brain for them. But that's what we're called to do. Paul knows how difficult, how humanly speaking impossible that is for us. And so he turns to this amazing example of Jesus Christ. Not only for an example, but because this example was expressed toward us. It becomes the power of God. The engine within us that enables us to live in this way of humility and service. Because Jesus has done it. Times a Googleplex towards you. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who, he's talking about Jesus, although... Although it's a word that we typically use when we want to introduce some surprising, unexpected contrast of things. Like, you know, um, although Steve is the richest man in the world, he drives a beat-up Honda, and he lives in a one-bedroom house in Steinsville and eats macaroni and cheese for lunch. That's a surprising contrast. This is the kind of contrast, in fact, that Paul is setting up here with Jesus. Although Jesus was this thing, he's, he behaved in this way. Far greater than that Steinsville Steve analogy. Well, the first half of Paul's contrast is this. Although he, being Jesus, existed in the form of God, that word existed is a to be or a being verb expressed in this Participial form, but 
It's a sort of, it's not the usual Greek word for being. It is a timeless kind of out of time word. It points back to everything prior to what we're talking about here, kind of his being up until this moment, up to this event. So this is Paul's way of of talking about, indicating the eternal existence of Jesus prior to the incarnation. When he, as he was with his father in heaven before all worlds, when, before he was conceived in Mary's womb. Long before that, Jesus was, as John says in John 1, verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. How was he in the beginning with God? He existed, Paul says, in the form of God. So when we think of form, we typically think of shape. We've got to get ideas of shape out of our head to understand what this, this word is teaching us. The Greek word behind this is morphe. And it's a very interesting word for which we don't have a good English equivalent. It's more of an abstract idea. And here's the idea. It, it's referring to the essential essence of a thing as it is seen or expressed outwardly. So the essential essence of something as it is displayed. And in Paul's day, this word morphe was used by the Romans as a, a way of explaining the sealing of a document. They'd drop hot wax onto the document, as you know, you've seen it in all the movies, and they'd put the signet ring into the wax and it would leave its impression into the wax. They pull it off and there's the ring. Its expression is right there on the page and it carries with it its significance wherever it goes. That was the morphe of the ring there on the wax. This is exactly how the author of Hebrews speaks about Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, is, he says, the radiance of God's glory. This is Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So from eternity past... Jesus is, was in the morphe, or the form of God. He not only was God, but he shared his same majestic radiance and glory. So Paul is more or less assuming that Jesus was God. What he's really getting across is he, he existed with God, as God, in the same glory and display of glory of, the, of God. He had, the evidence of divinity was clear. He was there in majestic and awesome power. Unhindered, undiminished, unveiled, complete power. There to be enjoyed by him, himself, and there to be adored and worshipped and glorified and, and, uh, by all of the heavenly beings. He shared God's, all of God's attributes, all of God's power equally. And you would have known it to look at him. Not by his shape, but by the glory of his character of his power, of his awesomeness. We can't even imagine it because we're imagining spiritual realities. But that's how Jesus existed then. That's the first half of the contrast. Although Jesus existed from eternity past in this exalted, infinite, unbounded form of full, on-display divinity, Here's the other half of the contrast. He starts to move into it. Although he did was that, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
So that full equality of essence and form which Jesus had from eternity past, he didn't feel the need to grasp. This is one of the places of many in this passage where we can go astray in our thinking. What is being said? What was Jesus not thinking he needed to grasp? Something he did not yet have or possess? It's sort of what our minds go to when we hear this expression, but it's not quite right. Jesus was in full possession of everything. There was nothing he lacked. This is what Paul's saying. He was in the form of God, the morphe of God. He had everything. And yet he did not feel the need to grasp it. The kind of grasping that we sometimes imagine is the, when we think of Jesus maybe thinking, well, here's my humility. I could have more, but I'm just going to leave it there, and I'm going to go down here instead. Jesus, actually, that kind of idea of grasping is the, is the grasping of Satan. You read about this in Isaiah 14. Satan is thinking to himself, there's God. Man, I want to have some more of that. I want to be that. Here's what he says in Isaiah 14. I have it somewhere. He said, I will make myself like the Most High. That's the attitude, the mind, the thinking of Satan. I will make myself like the Most High. I'm going to reach up and grasp for it. But that's not the use of this word that Paul has in mind. And the, the King James, I think, actually translates it in an, uh, an unhelpful way when it says, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That is one legitimate way of using that word. It's used that way in Scripture. But that's not how Paul's using it here. There's another sense of it, which is this, that it's not something that I feel like I have to hold on to that is mine, that I have to clutch desperately at all costs. But I can let it go. I'm willing to pay that cost. Jesus had everything he could have, full equality with the all-sufficient God, the fullness of glory, but he did not feel it was essential that he cling to that. But for the sake of our redemption, he was willing for his dignity temporarily to suffer and appear to diminish. He did not cling to the prerogatives of his divine majesty, but voluntarily waived his rights to freely express his deity, to fully display and wield his attributes and to visibly demonstrate his equality with God. But he gave up his heavenly throne in exchange for a cross of shame and suffering for us. That's the idea that Paul's getting across here. He did not cling to his equality with God, but instead, what did he do? He emptied himself. He emptied himself, taking the form or the morphe of a bondservant. Now, this is one of the most debated and written about parts of this whole passage. This is what theologians call kenosis. And there's lots of different theories about kenosis on the internet. And before the internet, in books and articles. There's much thought about, talked about over long history. Kenosis comes from ekenosin, which is Greek for emptied. It's also been the source of a lot of deadly errors 
about what Jesus gave up or didn't give up in coming down to us to bear the weight of our sin. Some have said and taught that this shows us that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. Though he was in the form of God, he set that aside. He put all of that, his godness, on the shelf, left it there in heaven, and he came down here just as a man, just became completely man. That's heresy. That's, that's, that is soul-destroying heresy. If it denies something essential in salvation, that only a fully divine Savior, only an infinite, all-powerful Spirit could satisfy the totality of God's wrath and swallow up death for all time. These are things said about our Savior, that he took upon himself the totality of all of our sins on himself, and in the process, swallowed up death for all time. No man, mere man, can do that. So it's vital that we understand that Jesus, in coming to earth, remained fully God, fully divine. That is not what he emptied himself of as he came to us. Others say, no, he didn't, he didn't do that, but he did give up some aspects of his divinity. He put on the shelf some of his attributes, some of his divine attributes. He took them out here. He put them on the shelf. Not the total nature of divinity, but some of the attributes. That's how we understand. Otherwise, how could we understand that Jesus was down here um, in this form and not doing regularly all of these, you know, what he's capable of doing. Why would, he, why would he do that? What does it mean? Charles Wesley, the great 18th century hymn writer, expressed this problematic view in a hymn we're going to sing at the end of this service. <laughs> we all make mistakes. I'll probably make mistakes in this sermon because we're talking about things that are, like, hard to talk about without swerving accidentally even into error. But here's what he said in And Can It Be? That there's a particular line. Originally, he said of Jesus, he emptied himself of all but love. Well, that makes it sound like he took all of his power, his might, his infinite knowledge, and he, his, his infinite presence, and he put it on a shelf, and, and all he kept with him was his love and came down to heaven. That's problematic. Because God, if he takes any attribute of himself and separates it out, ceases to be God. He is less than God. Less than divine. He cannot do that. So something else was going on. Something else was being communicated by this emptying that we read of. And I th later hymn book writers have wisely altered Wesley's hymn, and we're going to sing it in the altered way. I have it on good authority from Brandon Chastain that it's not better poetry, <laughs> but it's better theology. Emptied himself so great his love. Notice that the text does not say he emptied himself of anything. It simply says he emptied himself. As in, he poured himself out in service to fallen man, allowing himself to be fashioned into the suitable form of that service 
the humble, subordinate form of fallen man. The King James Bible commentary has a really helpful explanation of this analogy and an analogy for this. It says this, quote, Jesus did not empty something from himself, but he emptied himself from something. That is the form of God. The free, unhindered, unveiled display of his majesty. He emptied himself from that form into another form. And here's the analogy it uses, the King James commentary. It says, the figure presented is similar to pouring water from a pitcher into a glass. The form is different, but the substance is the same. So Jesus' substance, his divine essence, cannot change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the manifestation of that substance can and did change at his incarnation. The inestimably, inestimably rich contents of his own glorious and divine picture, if you will, of heaven, he allowed willingly to be poured into a little humble glass, the chipped lip, and smudges all over it. The King James translation of this phrase goes ahead and, and sort of removes this, this language and just sort of interprets it for us so that we get an idea for what it's really saying. And it's helpful. He made himself of no reputation. To look at him in heaven would be to be in eternal awe. And yet he poured himself, emptied himself into this form of no reputation. Nothing to look at. The form of a bondservant or a slave. In fact, we see that put into action, don't we, in his life. He, most notably in John 13, in the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took a towel. There was no slave on hand to wash their feet because they're in hiding. They're trying to keep us under wraps. And they're, they're, here they are. Nobody is to wash, there to wash their feet. Jesus sees us. He takes a towel and he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet himself as their slave. He was the Lord of glory, humbling himself, pouring himself out into this form of servanthood. Obedient service was the tenor of his earthly life. It was the morphe, the outward display or form of his inner attitude of humble service. And he displayed it in so many ways in the time of his life on earth. He said it himself in Matthew 20, the son of man did not come to be served. That's what I was doing in heaven. I was being served. Here I, I have not come to be served, but to serve. Now, Paul moves on from that to unfathomable mystery. Christmas, the mystery of Christmas. The next phrase, being made in the likeness of men. Jesus, who is and remains fully God, took on, added to his divinity, full manhood. He became fully man without losing or diminishing any essence of his divinity. 
He didn't just appear like a man. Like, it does say in the likeness of men. And this is another one of those evocative words throughout this text where people go astray and, and get on the wrong track in their understanding of God. He, w- didn't, he wasn't like some ghost or manifestation of God that wasn't real or tangible. He was really man. And so he did not lose a, he did not lose a being. He did not lose a, a what? He did not lose a nature. That's the word I'm looking for. He did not lose a nature in becoming man. He gained a nature. He took on an additional nature, simultaneous to his divine nature. This is the mystery of the incarnation. There aren't words really to explain this, but it is essential to what Jesus is doing and accomplishing and how he accomplishes it. Just like we needed him to remain fully God, to atone for all of our sins and swallow up death for all time, we needed a Savior who was fully man. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, just says it plainly. He says, He had, this is Hebrews 2.17, He had to be made like his brethren in all things. Why? so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So in order for Jesus to serve as our priest adequately, sufficiently, in order to make atonement for the sins of the people, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Was Jesus made like his brethren in all things? In all but one, what's the important qualifier? Yet without sin. He was a perfect man. Perfect man. And yet here's something remarkable. You couldn't tell it to look at his body. In his body, he bore from birth, and increasingly as he aged, (laughs) the marks of our own curse. Isn't that incredible? Tell me, did Jesus bleed? Did Jesus feel need? Did Jesus, could Jesus die? He didn't come bearing the signs of his perfections and his moral perfection, but he came, though he did not himself bear any of his own guilt from the very beginning as our mediator he came bearing the marks in his body of our curse John Murray says this Jesus came into the closest relationship to sinful humanity it was possible for him to come without thereby becoming himself sinful Why? So that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. So our Savior could be known to us as understanding. So that he could be a mediator between God and man. Here he is. Somebody needs to mediate. We got an offended, holy, righteous God and we have a world of of disobedient, rebellious sinners, you and me. 
and we're all going to hell unless somebody intervenes and mediates. And here in the incarnation, Jesus, in the form of God, emptying himself out of humble service and the spirit of service into the form of a man becomes both, he becomes the God-man, the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's what scripture calls him. That's where, and that is, as, as it says in Hebrews 2.17, so that he could make propitiation for the sins of his people, which is where Paul goes next. The links Jesus went yet after this to make that propitiation, that atoning sacrifice for us. Jesus' humility does not stop with his being made in the likeness of man. It goes further, further down. Spurgeon says, Our text here, speaking of this one, does not speak so much of the humiliation of Christ in becoming man as of his humiliation after he took upon himself our nature. So this is when his humility really kicks in. He didn't just come down here, cross the unfathomable creator-creature divide. He He allowed himself to be formed and fashioned and become like a creature. He didn't just do that. His humility really kicks in here and how he stoops lower and lower still for our good. And here's what Spurgeon says. Oh, how we ought to love him and serve him. The lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. Blessed be his name. He stoops and stoops and stoops. And when he reaches our level, manhood, and becomes man, he still stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. Verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, so being understood by the residents of earth to be really a man, somebody they could know and touch and talk to, knew where he grew up, he humbled himself yet more by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we see how low Jesus was willing to stoop in his service of us. He became obedient even unto death or unto death, the death of a cross. He was willing to pay the ultimate price. He gave willingly up his life, not just figuratively, but literally. This is something that happened. Jesus came and gave up his life. And not just by any death, but by the most shameful of all deaths, the death by crucifixion, death on a cross. That was a death so brutal, so horrible, that it was considered suitable only for criminals and slaves. Roman citizens didn't get crucified. This was for off-scouring, worthless people. This is the form of death that Jesus submitted himself to. It was performed outside of the city because of how uncivilized in the extreme it was. Those to be crucified were first whipped and then made to carry their own crossbeam to the place of crucifixion. Jesus, in his case, wasn't strong enough to do it, so they conscripted Simon, but this was the norm, a further form of humiliation. 
The crucified were stripped naked and usually left hanging to die by slow and agonizing suffocation. It was so unnatural a death that God's law forbid the practice, calling anyone who died by that means cursed. And this is not accidental that because of that statement in the law, this is the form of, God, of death that Jesus submitted himself to because he was there to become a curse for us, to take upon the curse of sin and death. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Have you ever seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ? I can't recommend it, but it's helpful in this sense. You get a sense for the gore, the physical agony and horror of that event. It's pretty realistic, disturbingly realistic. But that really doesn't tell the half of the story. There was something spiritual going on that was an intensely deeper, infinitely deeper agony for Jesus. That in bearing our sin on the cross in his body, he is having to suffer his father's rejection and hatred and wrath for sin. He's experiencing it. He's undergoing it. And this elicits his, one of his famous last cries, quote from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took upon himself the sins of the world and bore God's wrath. The innocent, most high God voluntarily emptied himself and was made man. And he stooped and stooped and stooped and stooped some more. To this point, the, la the lowest rung on the ladder far away from heaven as you can get, spiritually and physically. And here he was for you and me. It's an amazing recounting of this, this, this whatever you call it, the, the steps down of Jesus' voluntary condescension, humiliation to become the Redeemer. Let's not forget, though, in closing, why Paul is reminding us of these things. Why he plopped this little nugget down in the middle of the letter. He's using it to reinforce this appeal to you and me that we would be humble and that we would see each other as better than ourselves and that we would put the priority on each other's needs before our own, which is a hard thing to do. But look at Jesus. That's why this is here. Jesus has done this towards you times a Googleplex and a half. This is not a one-to-one -one comparison. This is gospel logic. Paul is arguing from the lesser to the greater.
Here's how Calvin puts it. He says, this is not a comparison of similarities. Christ's humility consisted in abasing himself from the highest pinnacle of glory to the lowest shame and embarrassment. Our humility consists in not exalting ourselves by a false estimation. That's all we have to do, (laughs) is just not get puffed up in pride. Jesus yielded voluntarily, says Calvin. All that's required of us is that we do not assume to ourselves more than we ought. I said last week that the greatest threat to our unity as a church is what? That we forget ourselves. That we forget Jesus Christ and the great cost in which he was willing to make for our salvation. That we forget his humility, the price of it, the the value of it. (laughs) Which, as Calvin rightly says at the end of his comments on this section, there are not words sufficient for this. It is so great that we would forget our sin, our guilt, and in forgetting that we would be puffed up in pride or think and start to act like the Pharisee towards the publican or the tax collector in, the, in Jesus' parable. We looked at others, oh man, I'm glad that I'm not like that. Somebody really in need of help, really in need of grace. That we forget ourselves. Every year I look forward to Good Friday, the Good Friday service, for lots of reasons. But one of them, one of the chief ones is this song, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. And in particular, this verse of this song. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed. Son of man and son of God. We think of sin but lightly. And so we get proud. We think it's not that big of a deal. We start to think we're not that bad. And in fact, there's other people clearly worse than me. And therefore, that means I'm better than them. And we start to, not start, this is who we are, unless we keep ourselves down. And Jesus came to humble us. The gospel came, has been proclaimed, to humble all men before God. And to create in us the most beautiful spirit of love and service towards God and others. That's completely unnatural to us. as supernaturally formed, born in us by the Spirit of God. Think of the depths that Jesus stooped for you. 
Think of the costliness of his sacrifice. Think who bears, who bears the awful load of it. Are you still proud? Do you regard one another as more important than yourselves? Do you not only look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others? Here's why this is here. Jesus did. He did not look out for his own personal interests. He emptied himself. And he looked out for yours. Do you, Jesus did not regard himself more important than others. But he took on the form of a bondservant and gave his life in obedient service for you and for me. Jesus did that. He went to unfathomable links to look out for your interests. You, a sinner, will you still be selfish? We need to remember ourselves. We need to remember our Savior. And in gratitude to him, we need to seek to be like him. We need to seek to be like him. Being like Jesus, exhibiting this attitude of humble service, which we have received, we are the beneficiaries of in the extreme. Extending that to others creates the most beautiful thing. It testifies to the most glorious truths. It exhibits, as we saw in Jesus' own high priestly prayer, it exhibits proof positive that Jesus was not just a man, but God, that God sent him into the world. Do you want to prove to the world that God sent Jesus in, into this world and that that has powerful things going on with it? Love one another. Be humble. Look out for each other's interests. We need to carry around with us the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We need to not forget ourselves. I want to close by reading this from repeating our scripture lesson from Ephesians, because this is what we need to happen. This is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God.
You want to be filled up with all the fullness of God? What does that look like? In no small part, it looks like exhibiting in our day-to-day lives, in our homes, in our service, at our small groups and home groups, with one another, towards one another, in committee meetings, elders meetings, deacon meetings, school meetings, an attitude of humility, which comes from seeing and remembering and having our minds open to comprehend more and more the boundless love of God. So let's pray that God would give us that vision and help us to carry it around in us wherever we go. Heavenly Father, we pray today that you would open our minds, the minds of our hearts, and that you would help us to comprehend your love, your sacrifice expressed in Jesus' condescension to us, to the lowest place, death on a cross. Help us, Father, to live out of that in, our, in humble service, in a humble Christ-like attitude. Work those things in us by your power. Teach us to be like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.